Shut up and sit down. I like how one of the really big reveals in the beginning of the movie is that lightsabers can be green. We have the whole fucking Crayola collection of lightsabers. Welcome to Popcraft, where we'll autopsy the screenplays behind your favorite films and TV shows. I'm your host, Carl Albert. Let's begin before we jump into the thick of things with an update about the podcast as a whole. Now with this third episode, thank you so much for listening, by the way. Thank you for making it to episode three. I assume if you made it to episode three, then like, fuck it, you're at least committed to this trilogy, right? So thank you for giving this a shot. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. Share it on social media. I would greatly, greatly appreciate it. These episodes take a lot of work and a lot of time, a lot of research, and I'm really putting my heart and soul into this thing. Next up, in a similar vein, I just wanted to say that I'm also officially launching with a Patreon. It'll be linked in the liner notes below. All my socials, everything will be linked in the liner notes below. You can find the Patreon at patreon.com slash popcraftscreenwriting. Again, that's patreon.com slash popcraftscreenwriting. Please consider donating. I'd super appreciate it. It would help me cover the hosting fees. This is currently making me bleed money. And I mean, even beyond that, it will help me improve the show. I would super appreciate it. I'm currently like a beggar out of reality, I guess. Or in this case, really more like, you know, Leonardo da Vinci only with like 10% of the intelligence and like 120% of the cock. Um, Please consider uh, donating sharing the love and even if you can't afford to donate or you're not interested please subscribe to the podcast leave a review i would just super duper appreciate it thank you so much now let's jump right in to what you're all here for star wars episode 6 return of the jedi to begin with we'll recap episode 6 with the hero's journey phase 3 in the hero's journey the final phase in the hero's journey joseph campbell defines as the return and we begin with the refusal of the return a parallel to the refusal of the call. This is an instance where Star Wars actually follows refusal of the return. You see, Luke, if his grand arc is about completing his Jedi training and facing Darth Vader, then his refusal of the return is going after Han on Tatooine, facing off with Jabba the Hutt, leaning into the rebellion and foregoing his overarching conflict. The next step in the departure in Act 3 of the hero's journey is the magic flight. So... To be completely fucking frank, I'm not really sure I can pinpoint the magic flight. I, I'm struggling to. I actually, I did a lot of research for this episode, you know. I was sort of panicking, like, well, what's the magic flight in Return of the Jedi? Like, this is clearly Act 3. Everything else is very apparent in the story. And I, I know what the magic flight is about. So did George Lucas just skip it? I mean, I don't know whether or not he was consciously applying the hero's journey to every step. Or if he just, I don't know if he just loved it. And then sort of lean into it where he saw fit or if he actively made an effort to follow the hero's journey. What I can say is Star Wars as a whole seems to. So I was panicking like the, the magic flight has to be in here, right? Like surely even on sort of an, an implied way as Joseph Campbell would talk about it, you know, surely the story alludes to the magic flight. And I was thinking, oh, maybe it's, you know, Luke and the rest of the game escaping from Jabba the Hutt. And you can certainly view that. I, I think that's a possibility because the magic flight is generally viewed as an escape or, you know, sort of a confrontation with a guardian figure, a, a, um, a being of greater conflict. 
like Cerberus in Greek mythology, you know, the three-headed dog who, who guards the gates to Hades. But the refusal of the return and how that's so clearly Luke refusing to go back to Yoda to finish becoming, uh, you know, a Jedi by confronting Vader, it's, it felt wrong to me to claim the magic flight was then part of that same adventure. Now, perhaps it is. Maybe you interpret it that way. I mean, I think that is a big part of the hero's journey is it is broad enough that it's open to interpretation. As specific as the steps are, they're symbolic, meaning that there is a level of interpretation in terms of what they mean, how they fit in. So I can't say for certain that I know what the magic flight is. I think it's perhaps Luke and the gang escaping Jabba's palace, but maybe not. You know, maybe it is that journey to Dega or not Dagobah, Endor. Maybe it's that journey to Endor. You know, I can't say for certain. The Magic Flight is really all about this one last reckless escape, this one last reckless adventure. So, you know, why don't you guys chime in? What do you think the Magic Flight is in Return of the Jedi? Do you think it even fits in? Have I been bullshitting this entire time about the hero's journey? you hate the hero's journey please let me know going from there we have rescue from without now this is very clear for me and i think is probably the most iconic moment in return of the jedi it is vader's turning it's vader seeing his son nearly killed he takes the emperor and like a fucking i mean he's not really a deus ex machina but you know he throws the emperor saves our hero the hero doesn't beat the bad guy vader does Endor has happened, the Battle of Endor. Lots of asses have been kicked. Stormtroopers miss people like they're fucking blind. Which I will say, I don't know if you guys remember, but in episode four, Luke has a line about how he can hardly see out of his helmet, which I have to imagine maybe has something to do with why stormtroopers can't hit a single fucking thing. Anyway, side tangent. After Rescue from Without, we get the crossing of the final threshold. That is Luke leaving behind the Death Star as it's blowing up and returning back to his friends. There, he can officially embrace his role as master of the two worlds. After embracing the light side of the Force, his sort of true apotheosis moment, his ascendance to godhood, his connection with the world of the divine, and then we have the freedom to live, where Luke now, unburdened, knowing that he's redeemed his father, that he's matured into a man and become a full Jedi Knight can live his life as he wants to at least until the next Star War happens that's sort of a very broad quick synopsis hitting things you know uh, it's it's a bit messy I don't want to focus too much on the hero's journey because I think we've really hit it a lot I mean I had a whole episode and again please let me know if you want me to cover the hero's journey even more so we have Return of the Jedi and in Return of the Jedi I want to talk about Something that I have alluded to before that I briefly discussed that every screenwriter in Hollywood, I'm sure, is fucking sick of talking about. And anyone who has any experience with screenwriting is probably just exhausted with, which is three-act structure. In the simplest terms, three-act structure is beginning, middle, and end. That's the broadest way you can view it. But in Hollywood, in screenwriting, and I think even in TV writing, frankly, we'll get to TV structure in later episodes, but Hollywood has this idea of three-act structure that was built up by the book Save the Cat, which, you know, I recommend you read. It's maybe a bit more prescriptive than it should be. 
Uh, but, you know, it continues into Sid Fields. It continues into all sorts of the, the great writers and the great teachers who have written about screenwriting, about structure, about film, and about analyzing how it all comes together and how writers make the movies that they do. From all of this, from this great foundation, Hollywood has sort of become entrenched with this notion of the three-act structure. It's something that, frankly, I'm certainly tired of talking about after four years of film school and all the reading I've done, all the scripts I've written, and, you know, even pushing past it, it's, you know, I'm, I'm sort of almost, or at least I was, sort of in a rebellious teen phase, like, you know, it's not a phase, mom, I want to write in four acts, I want to write in six acts, fuck you, like, that's sort of where my headspace has been for a long time, and only recently coming out of it, because three-act structure can feel constricting, but frankly, it's a really useful tool. It is really useful, and every writer should learn it, because it's broad enough that it doesn't have to like completely shape your movie into something very formulaic. A lot of indie movies, a lot of very subversive movies have three-act structures, and Return of the Jedi and Star Wars as a whole absolutely has a three-act structure. Now, what is the Hollywood three-act structure? It, I think you'll find, is reminiscent of the hero's journey. We open in Act 1 with our setup. That's what Act 1 is all about. I think no surprise if you're talking beginning, middle, and end. Act 1 is the setup. About midway to maybe 75% through Act 1, you have the inciting incident. This is probably the most famous turn coming out of the three-act structure. It's the call to action, right? It's exactly you know the same beat in the hero's journey where your main character, something happens to them, or they make a decision that suddenly pulls them into the story. And maybe your hero is reluctant, maybe they refuse the call, maybe not. But there is an inciting incident that makes the story take off. It is Luke encountering the droids in episode four, or in this movie, it is Luke sending the droids back to Tatooine to rescue Han. Now, yes, technically this happens off-screen, but you could view it as the droids' encounter with Jabba at the beginning of the movie. From there, we get to plot point one. This is the end of the first act. This is a turning point in the movie, even more so than the inciting incident. If, if the inciting incident sort of made the plot momentum happen, or rather, if the inciting incident made the plot momentum begin, plot point one, the end of act one, escalates it. It escalates the drama. It heightens the conflict. It is Luke and the Rebellion deciding to face off with the Empire one last time to take down their second Death Star that's in construction to make almost a suicide mission to the moon of Endor. From the end of Act 1, we come into Act 2, where the majority of the conflict happens, the majority of the movie, and the very first major beat of that is the midpoint. So you have rising action after the end of the first act, after that first major plot point. Rising action, conflict is escalating, our heroes are making decisions to make shit hit the fan, and then you have the midpoint upon which the whole movie turns. The midpoint changes the course of the movie. Maybe the heroes think they have a grand victory. Maybe they have a grand failure. 
whatever it is, something happens that changes the characters and forces them to confront their flaws, forces them to confront their emotional arcs. In the case of Return of the Jedi, it is Luke deciding that he has to face Vader. It is him deciding to leave his friends behind on the moon of Endor and that he's going to go up and face down his father one last time. That is the midpoint of Star Wars Return of the Jedi. Again, don't just think of it in terms of plot. This is an emotional beat, right? This is an emotional turning point. This is the character finally making a decision that thrusts them towards change. The rest of the second act happens, and things only get worse for our characters. They, they begin to lose hope. The world weighs down on them. The plot thickens, if you will. Pardon the cliche phrase. Maybe you have twists and turns, but you get n- near the end of the second act, and you have what is sort of broadly known as the dark night of the soul. This is the worst of the worst moment. It is when the hero is completely broken down. It is Luke being confronted with the Empire, seeing that this was all a grand trap, that he is trapped in the Emperor's throne room, that the rebellion is trapped in a conflict they seemingly cannot win, that his friends below will not be able to disable the shields that they've lost. And it's Luke giving in to his anger, the very thing he's trying to conquer, and swinging his lightsaber at the Emperor, only to have Darth Vader block. In the hero's journey, what is often either atonement with the father or the apotheosis, it is a symbolic death, right? It is tearing your hero into little tiny pieces so that they can pull those pieces back together, stitch them up, and be something stronger. Someone stronger. From there, we reach plot point two at the end of the second act. Now, like the first plot point at the end of the first act that transitions from the first act to the second, this is another point of transitioning, right? And I think it is arguably Luke deciding to swing for the Emperor, right? Like, I I think that that is probably the real turning point that leads us into the climax of the movie, which is, of course, act three. I think it's debatable. You can interpret it as you will. I mean, that's true with a lot of structures. Again, these things are broad. These these are flexible. But the, the great point of plot point two is that it turns the conflict into a new phase. It escalates it into its climax, into act three. And so in act three, our heroes get a second chance, a second wind. They lower the shield generator. Lando flies into the Death Star. And you know what? Luke beats Darth Vader. He beats his father. He succumbs to the darkness inside him, but you know what? It, he wins, doesn't he? He wins, but he's going to go bad, isn't he? Becoming the next Darth Vader, becoming the very thing he's afraid of becoming, becoming that darkness inside his father. But Luke, that boss-ass bitch, he can't keep a good girl down. He throws away his lightsaber. And he tells the Emperor, I've become a Jedi, like my father before me. Then the Emperor proceeds to fucking electrocute him, to force lightning him, to begin to kill Luke Skywalker slowly, brutally, painfully. And with the rebellion, it seems as if they won't be able to destroy the Death Star. All hope is lost. That 
is a common feature of the third act. All hope is lost. Now, it is often a more external darkness. You can view it as sort of if the end of the second act is bringing the hero to the lowest emotional moment for them, then the all hope is lost moment in the third act is sort of the external, oh, the good guys are going to lose, right? So it's more the, the plot has reached its lowest moment. You know, it's Captain America facing off with Thanos' army in Avengers Endgame. But Darth Vader and the big climactic twist, this is the climax. This is the beat that defines the third act. This is, again, in the hero's journey, the rescue from without. Darth Vader comes in, has a change of heart, opens his heart to the light side, and he saves his son from certain doom and truly fulfills the prophecy that he is the chosen one. And he kills the emperor, at least until Disney decides to retcom him back to life. And then finally, we come to falling action, the last phase in the third act. Falling action, again, the opposite of rising action, fairly self-explanatory. Things relax. There's less to no tension. Luke escapes the Death Star right as it's exploding. He lets his dad die. I mean, he doesn't let his dad die. His dad just kind of dies. And everyone gets super lit with the Ewoks. That is the end of the third act. That is the three-act structure. To recap, act one, which is overall the setup. Halfway to maybe two-thirds of the way to maybe maybe even three-quarters of the way through act one, you have the inciting incident. This is a crucial moment about where the entire story really begins. A little after that, plot point one. This is the transition moment between the first and second act. This is potentially the hero deciding to begin their adventure from the second act. We have rising action after that first plot point up until the midpoint, which again is another turning point. It's often a very emotional moment for the hero where they're forced to finally come back around and confront their emotional trauma, their flaw, they're forced to grow. The conflict continues to get more and more intense until we get to the dark night of the soul right at the end of the second act. Again, it's sort of in parallel to the inciting incident, right? If you can think the inciting incident is near the end of the first act, the dark night of the soul is near the end of the second act. The hero is brought to their lowest emotional moment where it seems like they're going to fail, but they manage to rise up. We get into plot point two, often the hero making some decision that makes the wheel of the plot turn into the third act, which is the climax. You get up to the all hope is lost moment where the plot you know, the goal of the hero seems to be lost. This is not their emotional arc, but rather the, the plot arc, you can think of it again as seems as if the rebellion is going to lose. The empire is going to win. This then brings us to the climax, the, the moment of the highest action. It is the moment of the utmost intensity, and ultimately, if it's a heroic story, a victorious story, the hero's triumph. And then you have falling action, Things relax, our characters are allowed to breathe, to really cement how they've grown until you reach the end of the third act and the end of the movie. And that is the three-act structure. Now, I never have to cover it again. Just kidding, I'll probably continue to touch on it, explore different variations of three-act structure, but that's sort of the foundation you can think of for whenever I mention three-act structure, that's what I'm talking about, right? Is, is this Hollywood's interpretation of 
beginning, middle, and end of how to tell a story. It's in a, in a way in sort of the modern Western version of how to tell a story. And there are other structures. Maybe you think, oh, that's almost exactly like every story. And I think it is broad. I don't think it's every story. I think there, there are, in fact, some Eastern structures, uh, four-act structure, which the, the Eastern notion, which is, you know, specifically talking about sort of the, the Asian uh, and East Asian notion of four-act structure is different even than the Western idea of four-act structure. We'll get into both of those later. But this is, I think, the most widely understood, most widely used structure in the modern world, frankly, and certainly in Hollywood. As you can see, as we covered, Return of the Jedi follows it. Star Wars as a whole follows it. You can map it on to the series. Again, I will cover it more in later episodes, but we need to move on into the meat and potatoes of Return of the Jedi, right? What are some of the real cool little things we can learn? Because I'm of the opinion that when you're writing... You know, you got to have a good foundation. You know, you got to understand three-act structure. You got to know how to structure things. But it's the little things that make you, like, a really good writer, right? You know, like, it's your ability to pace things. It's your ability to write dialogue. It's your ability to draw emotion from the audience. And as much as the three-act structure maybe is built to do that, if you don't have all the pieces in between those plot beats that I talked about, what's the fucking point, Right? So we'll get to the first act of Return of the Jedi. It's an unusual first act. Again, I want to touch on how subversive, actually, I think this first act is. It's a side quest, right? It is not the main plot. Yes, they're going to rescue, like, the third main character in Han Solo, Luke and Leia are, but, like, it has nothing to do with the Empire. It has nothing to do with Darth Vader. It has nothing to do with the Jedi. Luke gets to show up as a seemingly a Jedi Knight, and that's fucking awesome. But it's not, you know, the the crux of what Star Wars, the original trilogy, is about. And yet, it intrigues us, doesn't it? What is it doing that pulls us in? Well, like Empire, it focuses on character. You know, Han Solo, who is maybe the most popular Star Wars character, is certainly up there. He's in the utmost danger. Our heroes seem to lose. There are a lot of cool reveals this is something, if you listen to the last episode, that Hannah really touched on, which is the first act operates the rule of cool on the revealing things, surprising the audience. Luke is not the young man you left him as in the end of it, Empire Strikes Back. He is now matured, notably matured. He's seemingly a Jedi Knight. That is how he describes himself. He has a new lightsaber, a green lightsaber. Holy shit, lightsabers can be green. And he's wearing all black. He's wearing the colors of his father, of the bad guys. This is, of course, an intentional symbolic decision. And this arguably gets into costuming. But it is meant to evoke that Luke is closer than ever to the dark side of the Force. Now, I will repeat something I said last episode, which is I'm sad that we don't see with Luke grapple with the trauma of discovering that Darth Vader is his father, that, you know, this personal enemy, the person who embodies Everything he and the Rebellion are fighting against is his dad. And then we don't see him grow in the Force and become more powerful. You know, become so powerful that he Force chokes Gamorrean guards. Which, again, you cannot understate that knowing the rest of the series. Luke Force chokes those pig motherfuckers. Everything is setting up Luke as being so close to darkness. More competent than ever. More badass than ever. But violent 
and prone to anger. He threatens Jabba the Hutt. And not even in like, a, I'm going to save my friend's way. Like He's like, I'm going to fucking kill you. I'm going to shove this lightsaber down your throat. How else? Besides the rule of cool, besides all these surprises, besides another thing to touch on, Leia gets revealed as the fucking bounty hunter, the mercenary. I think the name is like Bosch, Boosh, something like that. You're like, holy shit, this dude who's like bringing Chewbacca in. That's, that's Princess Leia. Oh, they save Han Solo, but holy shit, Jabba knew. Jabba, Jabba saw it all coming. Jabba is like the premium godfather of the Star Wars. He's a genius in his own right. Twists and turns galore. Luke has to face a fucking giant, like, dinosaur thing, right? The first act is drawing you in with this epic, adventurous story on its own. It's surprising you at every turn. It's like a short film. And that is subversive. And that, it, again, it does not reflect the rest of the movie beyond, you know, the adventurous tone of it, the characters in it. There's one more thing that I don't think it's discussed a lot, which is the first act of episode six parallels the first act of episode four it brings everything full circle yes we are back on tattooing which cannot be understated and how important that is but also we open with a scene focusing on darth vader focusing on the empire focusing on their power we see more stormtroopers in one room than we've ever seen before we see darth vader striding in looking like a complete badass this is just like how episode four opened admittedly with more action but it's establishing the same things right and then we go to r2 and c3po who are povs into this movie they're the first real like characters we love that we see in this movie just like in episode four and they're alone and they're on tattooing but things are different now they're working together yes they bicker but they are together this shows us how far we've come that even these droids, you know, maybe they've not had legitimate character arcs, right? But our heroes are united. We've come a long way from the dregs of Tatooine in Episode 4. And that has a subtle impact on the audience, doesn't it? We get excited to be back on Luke's home planet. We get excited to see Han Solo in this bounty hunter environment where we were introduced to him. It's bringing us all back to where it all started. That, if I can sort of simplify things about what works in this first act, it's not only the spectacle, the adventure, the, the, that sort of very superficial storytelling. It's the way it plays to our heart, the way it has one of our favorite characters in danger, and the way it very subtly reminds us of where this whole story started. So if you're telling a trilogy, or even if you're just arcing out the third act of a movie, the climax can parallel the beginning of the movie, right? If the third act is in parallel to the first act, you will evoke a strong emotional reaction in the viewer. I think that is something to really hone in on. Your third act doesn't have to parallel the first act, and it doesn't have to do it perfectly. You know, it doesn't have to be like copying beats or like slightly changing beats. But if you do play with that, you're probably gonna have an even stronger impact in the third act than you would if you just pretended as if we've moved way past the first act and it's, it's all behind us. So whether that means literally coming full circle 
on a location or with characters, with where they've been, think about paralleling that third act and that first act. However, for as interesting and uh, arguably subversive as the first act of Return of the Jedi is, I think it struggles in a way none of the other Star Wars movies do. And that's in its second act and where a lot of writers struggle. The second act can be confusing, can be difficult to process, you know, it can be a little flabby. Uh, it's, it's often where the most trimming happens in later drafts. And Star Wars, I don't know if it could have used trimming, but it definitely could have used some reworking. I'm not going to shit on the Ewoks. I've actually, as I've grown up, kind of come around to the cute shit in Star Wars. Like Porgs, love them. Love those guys. I could have like little dolls of all the cute little animals in Star Wars. Baby Yoda, Grogu, just icons all around. So the Ewoks, they're fine. They don't have anything really to do with Star Wars, but you could make it work if they and the second act in general played deeper into the characters' arcs, if they, if they actually had emotional growing to do. Luke does, especially once he goes and decides to confront Darth Vader. He tells Leia that they're related, but... There's sort of a manufactured conflict between Han and Leia. Leia refuses to tell Han that, you know, she's Luke's sister. So Han's like, oh, you're in love with him and blah, blah, blah. And that's as personal as the second act really gets for Han and Leia for everything going on on Endor. We talked about in the last episode that although the middle of Empire Strikes Back doesn't have a lot of plot, doesn't have a lot of twists and turns has, you know, the spectacle you expect from Star Wars, but nothing extraordinary. But it is somehow so compelling because it challenges the characters on a very personal level. It forces them to grow. And Return of the Jedi only does that superficially. The Ewoks don't challenge the characters at all. They're just sort of there. They're kind of fun. They create a little bit of conflict. C-3PO becomes a god and... You know, that's fucking epic. I worship C-3PO myself. Shitty jokes aside, it's just not really an act that does anything with character, particularly on Endor. So if there's one thing to learn from Return of the Jedi to avoid, it's that don't just create conflict out of nowhere. Don't make up cheap conflict like, you know, the weird love triangle between Han, Luke, and Leia, which has hardly even existed up until this point. And don't, if you're going to create something cute, something fun like the Ewoks that are going to drive so much of the plot for a while, do something interesting with them. Make them reflect where the characters have to grow or how they have grown rather than just being almost a stereotype of tribals, people. Next, we'll go to pacing and specifically to the notion of intercutting. Now, intercutting is a film term. It's also known as cross-cutting. Basically, it means cutting quickly between scenes as they're happening. So a famous example, the one that I was actually initially taught the term with, is in the climax of The Godfather, spoilers for The Godfather, when uh, Michael is going through his, I think it's his cousin's or his nephew's baptism, we're showing you know this, this really sort of relaxing but kind of foreboding scene of him there. 
as we cut to scenes of all of his mob enemies picked off, assassinated. It's often a mo moment to, to parallel things. It, again, getting back to that, intercutting is about upping the tension by showing images, scenes that conflict, that parallel, that, that, that up the stakes, up the, your heart rate, right? And often this is included by getting faster and faster and you're cutting. You know, that's what Star Wars does. As the battle in space, on, as the battle of Endor escalates, they cut faster and faster between the scenes until we get to the lowest moment in the story, right? When Luke surrenders, when Luke tries to kill the Emperor. At the same time, you have Han and Leia. It seems like they've lost. Like, they're not going to lower the Death Star's shield that the rebellion outside in space has been captured, that they're all going to die, that Lando and the Millennium Falcon is going to get blown to shreds. They intercut faster and faster, shorter and shorter scenes to get your heart rate up, to get you feeling that tension, that suspense. That's a great way to pace your climax, to not only intercut, to intercut with this escalating pace, this escalating tension. And on the note of tension, another thing I want to cover with Return of the Jedi is suspense. Now, we talked about a sort of a very technical, something that can even happen in post-production way of building suspense is, is the temporal building of suspense, the, the way of manipulating time to build suspense by cutting faster and faster between different scenes that parallel one another. Another way is the Hitchcockian way of creating suspense. Alfred Hitchcock is one of the most famous filmmakers of all time. His name, I'm sure, at least sounds familiar to you, even if you haven't watched one of his movies, even if you don't truly know who he is, he believed that suspense was created in, well, the example he always gave for how suspense is created was you have a scene of dinner, two guys eating supper in a restaurant, and then suddenly a bomb explodes. That's a surprise, but it's not really suspenseful, right? Like, you're, you're shocked, but it has a very superficial temporary value. But what is more powerful, what does create suspense, is you see the bomb is planted. And then you see the two men come and sit down across from one another at the dinner table. And you see that clock tick down. You hear it ticking as the men discuss whatever they're discussing. That makes your heart rate go up yet again. That makes you anticipate the bomb blowing up. Because that's what it's all about. Suspense is sort of this neurosis in the audience. It's creating a neurosis in the audience. It's making them afraid of what's coming. It's making them predict the future. That is how Hitchcock defines suspense. And that is how Return of the Jedi does it too. The moment where Luke is beating Vader down, surrendering to the darkness, that is encouraged by all we've heard about how seductive the dark side is. But the moment of the highest suspense the climax of the movie is not with Luke and his decision. It's with Darth Vader's decision. Not only because we've seen him be evil, but because we've had everyone around Luke tell him that Vader is irredeemable. That is the bomb under the table. It is Yoda telling him that once you have fallen to the dark side, it defines your destiny. It is the Emperor telling him that Vader cannot be turned. It is Vader himself telling Luke that he cannot be turned. It is often 
true that the best way to create suspense is by having your characters say something, you know, like, you can't do this. You will not succeed. It is impossible. You hear this with the Death Star, you know, that it's in, in the first movie and in this one, it's a million in one shot, right? That if you don't lower the shields, we can't get in and blow up the Death Star. It's impossible. It's a suicide mission. These are all things you'll hear from movies that you hear in Star Wars. This is a way to create suspense. This is putting that bomb under the table, showing the audience that bomb under the table and hearing it tick, 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 tick. That is what Return of the Jedi does, not only with the external plot, with the bringing down of the Empire, with the bringing down of the Death Star, but with the bad guy, the emotional climax, with Darth Vader, with the thing that touches our hearts, with Luke. It's all about leading to that catharsis. When we watch that bomb blow up, because we knew it was coming. Sometimes it's a tragic catharsis, but in Star Wars, certainly, it's a satisfying one. It's seeing our villain go against the odds and lean into love. Or hell, it's Luke throwing his lightsaber away, which I certainly have thoughts about that, read The Last Jedi. Is Luke throwing his lightsaber away and saying, I'm a Jedi like my father before me. Suspense is the bomb under the table. And Return of the Jedi knows that, now you do too. Thank you so much for listening to these first three episodes of PopCraft. I hope if you're listening to this, you've listened to the first three episodes of PopCraft. Please, again, subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to it. Leave a review. That would help so much. Consider following me on my social media or PopCraft on its Twitter. All of this will be linked below again. Consider becoming a patron on Patreon. I'm excited to make two announcements. First of all, next week, we're going to launch our next episode with a Discord. I said in the very first episode that I wanted PopCraft to be more than a resource. I wanted it to be a community. And that's what this Discord will be. We're going to build a community of writers that want to analyze movies. I want to hear from you guys. I want to get to know you guys. And last but not least, I'm excited to announce that next week, we will be doing our very first TV episode focusing on one of my favorite TV shows of all time, getting started with the spooky month of October, a little early, The Haunting of Hill House. We'll be covering the first episode of The Haunting of Hill House, Stephen Sees a Ghost. I encourage you to watch at the very least that episode now, if you can, to read the screenplay. It's free online. We'll be touching on both, the differences between them. And by we, I do mean me, and a very special guest, Hannah Shashelsky. I'm sure you guys loved her in Empire. God, I love her. She's so funny and so smart. Tune in next week for her thoughts and her getting us off track. My name is Carl Albert, and this has been Podcraft.